Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Talk on Tech. I'm Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. And today we have an interview with Mr. Brian Morgan. How are you, Brian? Very good. Thanks for being here today, guys. We wanted to talk to you today because we know that your trajectory may be a little bit different than some of our, our previous interviewees, and it's always good to give some people some diversity. So what I always ask everyone to begin with, how did you originally get into computers? Wow, that goes a long way back. I can very distinctly remember being a kid. My dad, he he taught business at a local high school, and I remember him getting into starting to teach computer class on Apple IIs a long time ago. I was probably eight, so we're talking early 80s, uh, mid-80s. And um, I would like to go to school with him, and you know he'd put me on, on the computer to play around. And, of course, Lemonade Stand. Very, very distinctly remember playing Lemonade Stand in the library at Chesapeake High School. And that's how I got started. And then a neighbor, he had a Commodore 64. And every time we'd go over to his house, like to play on the Commodore, and ask for a computer when I was little, ask for a Commodore. And I didn't get one, which was okay. But then really just on and off, played a couple games here and there until high school and was able to take a computer programming class, and we did uh, basic freshman year of high school. Even after that, I thought, eh, maybe, I don't know, don't know what I want to do. And then, again, my dad brought something to me, and he got a Mac. And this was the schools. And he said, you know, if you learn how to use this, you can make some money. And so a local dentist needed some ads done on the Mac, and so started with just desktop publishing skills, making ads, print-ready ads, making 20 30 bucks an ad when I was in high school. Nice. And so then, wanted to get away from computers, came to college, didn't have a computer. I was a math major. My freshman year, uh, earned a scholarship, so my mom gave me some money to go buy a computer. Bought my first desktop, and remember it well, Packard Bell 486DX2, 66 megahertz, <laughs> 4 mega RAM, yeah. and a 100 meg hard drive. Very not, nice. Not gig, mm-hmm. RAM, meg, <laughs> yeah. megs of RAM. <laughs> so started tinkering with it, but I was always good at math. I liked math. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it, but learned quickly that uh, after a couple of professors didn't like how I was able to solve problems on my own, that I didn't follow their methods, that math wasn't going to be for me. And since I had a natural tendency to try to solve problems in my own way, I had a couple of computer science people in a physics class with me. And so I thought, you know, I always like computers. So late in my sophomore year in college is when I switched to become a computer science major. And not until, I think it was my fall of my junior year, did I take my first computer course uh, at the university in terms of programming. And was that CSD at the time? It was. It was still the computer science, the old computer science department. And my very first programming class was ADA, which uh, at the time was a very popular programming language for uh, especially contract work in the Department of Defense. And first first computer class you enter, the professor tells you if you like computer science and you graduate, you're guaranteed, pretty much guaranteed a job downtown at Strictly Business. They were a very big defense contractor at the time, and all of their people did ADA. Of course, that's all changed today. I mean, which you know, as things go, but uh, I thought I thought it was very unique that hey, guaranteeing jobs. But being the person I am, I told them I don't want to work in strictly business, and they said, "Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do." No, I don't. No, I don't. I didn't know. I didn't know strictly business from Adam. Right. But I just didn't want to follow the mold, 
Sure. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something different than anybody else. And so continued along the summer before my senior year, got a job on campus working under two professors who had a grant, and we started making multimedia-based tutorials. And the very first thing I had to do was program a uh, tutorial on how to use Eudora Lite. And that was the email client the university used back in the mid-90s, before Outlook, before GroupWise, or anything else. Sure. And, um, but one of, the other, one of my other classmates, he had already been working for one of the professors for a long time, and he was his right-hand man. And he was an excellent coder. And so anything I need, I'd run by him. And so we got to working on projects together. And so one day I got to demo what I'd done. And it was Jan Fox, who had just become vice president of IT at the time. She was in the room. And at the end, near the end of the meeting, she asked everybody. This was several professors, uh, several higher-ups, and I think two students. And she asked everybody if they knew of anybody who would be able to uh, come in, do some faculty training, uh, start using computers, and, and work as an instructional technologist on campus. And she mentioned the salary, and all the professors said, nope, you'll never find anybody for that. That's too low. That's absolutely just, no, you'll never find a good computer graduate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the meeting was over. I went to class, and it was bugging me. About 10 minutes into class, I got up, I walked out of class, and I was headed to find her. I left the classroom, turned left, the door opened, and there she was. And I said, I was coming to find you. And she goes, ironically, I was coming back to find you. And so we sat and we talked and never did go back to that class that day. And um, so she encouraged me to apply for the job, and I did, and I was hired. And that was uh, my very first real IT job as a full-time employee outside of student employment. And that was uh, way back in 1996. Well, you know, in, in a lot of the interviews I've done with people, we talk about a lot of times how there's no coincidences. But you had already gotten a reputation because you were already helping. You said you were helping the two faculty members who actually had the grant. So just to strengthen and re-strengthen what I always say, it is connections. Like it is. Networking, oh. you you never know when something you've done or helped somebody or somebody you know can say, oh, I know that person, and, and that gets you a meeting. Ultimately, it's, it's about who you know, but also it's the skills. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's what everybody always says. Oh, it's, some jobs are, oh, it's the good old boy system, and people are promised jobs. And I, and I know a lot of employers like that, that they'll only hire certain people or certain family, et cetera. But in in a university setting, what I tell my students is not only, you know, work your butt off and, and get good at what you do, but also make connections. And in, in terms of making connections, it's to get to know us, the faculty, because if, you know, if I have a class of 30 and there's 10 people having a, sure, I'll know who they are. But if there's three of them who I get to know and like, oh, outside of class, I like to do PHP or I like MySQL or I know Oracle. And then somebody comes looking for a job. Hey, do you have a PHP developer who knows Oracle? If I know that person better than the other five that got an A, even if they knew Oracle and I didn't know it, it's about those connections. And right. So it's it's all about that. But and then yeah, back to early, and, and my dad encouraged me that too. My parents were always in a, have always been in education my entire life. So you know, it's it's about the people that you know. And and I would watch him when he was teaching at the high school. 
some of the connections of his would tell on me at school. Hey, you didn't eat this today. You didn't eat that today. And as a kid, I was scared to death. I was like, how in the world? How in the world? But it is from, from any point in life. It, it's all about the connections you make and the connections you keep, whether good or bad. And you never know what you're going to need. It might not be just in your career field. It may be in, in life in general. Well, and, I, and you didn't necessarily hit on this area, but you also said that all the professors were saying there's no way you're going to find someone for this amount of pay. And I don't know if it's in your mindset at that point, but I always try to tell my students experience is experience, and there's there's hidden pay you don't actually see there that's more than monetary. Were you, were you thinking of that aspect at all? Or, or were you just finding your way to get into the system? Well, no, it's actually kind of ironic that, you know, when you go to college and some of these professors will say, oh, you're going to get a $50,000, $70,000 job when you graduate from our program. When she put the salary out there, I thought, hey, <laughs> that's a pretty good salary for a 21-year-old kid who's just starting out. And so, you know, yes, I had lofty goals in life, and but at the same time, I was 21 years old, and I thought, wow, that's a lot more money than I make now. I would be interested. Sure. One other thing, my parents were both graduates of the university, mm-hmm. and they were here during the plane crash. And so I'd, I'd lived Marshall University my whole life. And so when she mentioned the opportunity to work at Marshall, I didn't even know what all the job entailed. But immediately I knew, to me, that was a better opportunity than working at Strictly Business. I'm not dogging Strictly Business. Strictly Business is a great company. It's got some great employees. Some of my good friends still work there. But like I said, I wanted to be different. And I thought working at the university was a great opportunity for me to be different. So with you getting your degree, and I know you started working at the Center for Information or Instructional Technology, you ha- you were a programmer by trait by graduation. Did you do any side work? And, and if you did, can you talk a bit about um, tips and tricks or even advice you would give somebody who is a programmer, who's graduated as a programmer, who wants to try to get work or how they put their work out there to get more business, that type of thing? Doing stuff on the side, that's actually how... I probably got to be a better programmer than anything else. Um, sure, we learned Ada. I had a class on C++. I had a class on Fortran. What else? I had a class on Visual Basic. But just one class or two classes or, or several classes here and there is not going to make you an excellent programmer. How I got to practice doing programming was I also worked on the side for ESPN. And I started when I was 18 for ESPN, so I'd already been doing this for two or three years before I even switched majors, but I was their stats guy for basketball and and football games that are on TV. And everything I did was on paper. So kept rushing plays, passing plays, trends, everything on paper. How do you – okay, Huntington, West Virginia, ESPN. How in in the world does that even ever work out? Uh, Huntington has a regional office for ESPN. Really? Um, one of the uh, ex-vice presidents of ESPN was an ex-high uh, school teacher at Huntington East High School when it existed. And uh, he was actually their baseball coach. And so my dad and he go way back. Oh, okay. But that's not how I got started. Um, my dad and mom worked for Sports Information at Marshall for, I would say, 20-some years of their lives. And I started doing stats for the university when I was 12. Well, when I was a senior in high school, somebody said, hey, Brian does stats, right? Yeah. Oh, well, you're all looking at him to play baseball here, right? Yeah. Oh, that's illegal. You all been paying him. So there is a case in NCAA history where, you know, person paid to work stats, person to work basketball camps at university. So I, had, I was out. So when I came here, uh, 
cameraman got sick during a home football game. The stats guy that they had had actually run camera before, so they hired, you know, they took him to do camera. They called Sports Information and says, do you have anyone who could do stats in a pinch? And they said, well, yeah, Brian Morgan used to do stats for us, and, you know, he'd probably be interested. And uh, that's when I was a freshman here at the university, and 24 years later I'm still doing stats and score box work for ESPN and other other uh, TV companies. Wow. But after doing it two or three years on paper, I was like, you know, there's got to be an easier way. And so I started developing my own stats program. And so I ended up doing one for football and one for basketball. They made life easy. And it made life so easy that, you know, every play I put in all was right there. It was made for TV. And so I would give any stats that they wanted, including stats that are so off the wall they're like, we're not using that. We don't that's crazy. <laughs> How'd you come up with that? And so several people along the years they actually looked at the the software and it's like, hey, you know, you could market this. And I was like, no, I developed it myself. I know where the bugs are. I'll stay away from it. But I mean, I can stay away from the bugs, but you know, I, I don't want to market it. And now looking back, I really wish I would have. Yeah. But those were some of the best times I had in programming because it was doing stuff on the side for free. But at the same time, uh, the internet was was coming along and Google was out there. So I'd Google other techniques and styles and so I was able to incorporate a lot of different techniques that I'd never been taught before into programs that I made for myself. And then when I started working and doing other programming, found myself using some of those those same functions, some of the same classes. And so it really did help. But if it wasn't for me going out on the side, I don't think I would have you know been as, as, as successful as maybe I was uh, if I had just taken my classes, done the homework, and tried to get a job of my own that way. I can I can agree with that with with the students that I have and the experience just with with teaching them I highly encourage them to you know work on projects at home make your own stuff don't just come in do the classwork do the homework and then expect to be expert level when you leave and then you're trying to find a job and then cuz you're going to get thrown into a situation where you might not be using the same exact stuff that you did out of a textbook so that's definitely, uh, I, I really like that. That's a very good thing that uh, a lot of students, I think, really need to understand that if they can do those things, even if they're for free or even if they pay a little bit and can try to, you know, help them grow that hands-on knowledge of something outside of the textbook. Exactly. And you touched right there on the free part. Um, not everything's going to be for pay. And that's what I try to stress to students is you get better by doing stuff on your own, testing on your own, running by your buddies. And then you go out and get the job. Any way you can get the experience is better than just sitting there trying to get that high-paying job and then failing the interview. Going back to the idea of there's more than monetary pay to something. If you work on something for yourself when you worked on that stats program, you weren't getting paid for it, but it paid for itself in the fact that you now have another program you can put into your portfolio. I know that for me, I had to learn PHP and, and MySQL on the go and, and on the run when I was working. But then in my spare time, I was working on a, a database website for my mom. And I happened to like later turn that into my capstone. So, oh, okay. so All right. <laughs> that was my payment that I had there to, uh, to survive my master's degree. So, so yeah, sometimes the stuff you do for free pays off down the road. Well, it's kind of ironic, too, that... Because I had these programs, I mean, I was asked to go everywhere. So I got to do as many games as I wanted to, travel where I wanted to, 
in 97, I think it was, I did 15 college football games every single week, every single game. But then also kind of rewarding in a sense was doing games where I would be the second stats guy, like nationally broadcast CBS games or whatever, they bring me as a second guy. And then their head guy who had done it for 20 or 30 years would be in the booth with the talent. And I, I could give the TV truck stats faster than he could because of my software. And it was funny because most games he would say, hey, I got this, I got this. And then other times they would take the data from me because he'd be busy or whatever. But just last year, every game signed off on an NFL network and, or CBS is, I'd like to thank our stats guy, and that's him. So he, perceived, he he went on, and you know after all this experience, him and his dad have done stats for NFL, so he's on every game CBS does. And I was like, you know, I'm okay with that because I had fun. Uh, at the time, I was mad. I was like, yeah, he's getting all this money, and he's doing all this <laughs> and, and all that. But I had fun because it was right where I wanted to be sure. and a uh, little bit of pay on the side for each game. But it still allowed me to kind of flex and kind of grow uh, and not have to try to, you know, beat somebody all the time. Right. Well, and and just to step back for a second, if people are hearing this, possibly like me and thinking, what exactly does that mean, a stats person? I'm imagining that in the old-fashioned system, you might have had a sheet of paper for each player in whatever game it was, and then when some play was done, whether it was basketball and they made a two-pointer or a three-pointer, You'd go grab that sheet. You'd say they got two points this game. So that later you could say in this game they've had this much rushing or this many points. You could even then keep that sheet and look back at in this whole whole season. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, it's literally every play. If uh, if somebody ran the ball first first time they ran the ball three yards, second time two yards, I'd tally. So I'd have the number of carries and keep a running sum of their yards. And literally, if somebody broke a big run. I'd have to look at the talent and say, hey, that's 52 yards. And I have to tell the TV truck, that's now four carries, 65 yards, and come up with their average on the fly. And so I'd say, you know, <laughs> yeah, it was fun. So put my put my math skills to work, too. Right. And so 16.3, by the way. And um, uh, But I have to do that all on the fly. Right. And so then you have to – and also on the screen, they'd have some shells and say, oh, how many touchdowns today? So I have to know how many times they scored. So everything had to be kept not only on paper – but you had to really keep track of what was going on in the game. Okay, that's his second touchdown. Maybe it's his third. And so you'd have to keep track of everything. So with the new software, literally, as soon as I see the ball handed off, I'd hit a key on the keyboard, R, rush. And then uh, because I'd know who had the ball. And then as soon as I saw number 32 touch ball, I typed 32, enter. And then when he was tackled, put the ending yard line where he was tackled, and the software did the work. So yes. then it would pop up and say that's his third carry, 56 yards, the average, everything. And so I didn't have to do any more calculations. It was right there on the screen, highlighted the player that took the ball, and then uh, then later I'd add other features, rush left, rush right, rush up the middle. Right. So it, it would say, yep, that's his third carry up the middle for 20 yards. He ran around the right end for you know 70 yards. So that's how – and you watch a, a modern NFL game today – and all the stuff they see on the screen, it's all software-based now. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, when ESPN does a national broadcast, they have a whole their entire MIS crew that runs their truck for them. They call them the MIS group, and that's what they do. They type in similar stuff to what I was doing in the 90s. And, I, and you know, yeah, sure, I miss the opportunity by marketing and stuff. Sure. But at the same time, it makes you feel good that, you know, I was on the right track, and it really helped with the experience. Well, I mean, I also think it could even be so complex to think about, like, if you're a baseball person, you only have to think about how many hits they got, but then also possibly RBIs. 
if you're a basketball person, you think about how many points they got, but then also how many assists. And then if you're a football person, yes, that person ran for a such and such touchdown, but which quarterback did the completion? So it seems like not only are you having to back then on paper write on one person's sheet, you're also talking about the quarterback sheet as well as the runner sheet, or you're talking about the the hitter sheet as well as the fact that that person who was already on base got in. So it started to get complex. I know this is audio, but picture this. Picture yes. me sitting at a desk, and on the desk, it's about four foot wide. It's covered in paper. I'm also in a corner, and then on the window in front of me is taped a piece of paper or two, and on the window to my left is three or four paper papers taped. And yes, spin around right here, look down right here, look up right here. That's how I used to do it on paper. I mean, I would take a stack of stuff. I had pre-printed, I had a rushing form, a passing form, receiving tackles, turnovers, scoring charts, drive charts, everything to keep track of. I figured you had your, your quarterbacks on the left and your possible runners for the day on the right, and then down here is all your plays. And so yeah, it's pretty close. It, quarterbacks are on the right, and rushers are on the left. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, that's pretty close, though. But that's, yeah. And then first, I mean, you had to keep team stats, first downs, turnovers, fumbles, inters- uh, everything. Wow. Uh, kickoff returns. Everything was a separate place, but I knew where it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that, and, and without that experience, I could have never made the software. Because I made it, and because th- thinking, hey, where did I write this? What did I do on this? What did we do on a rush? And so it opened up the possibilities. Because like when you're keeping on paper, you didn't keep track of, you know, Josh Joseph just ran up the middle, Patrick Smith ran around left end. You just kept, hey, carried once, five yards. That's all. You know, it's kind of all you had time to even think about. Right. right. So getting back to the programming aspect of it, then I'd imagine one of your first piece of advice would be, write software for yourself, write software for your friends. It's practice. It's something you can add to your portfolio and go from there. Would you have any other advice in that realm? Yeah, I mean, what I tell students is not only try to find something to make your life easier, like, you know, create an inventory system or, you know, something that you would enjoy, but also try to mimic something. Uh, Don't try to mimic Windows or or Word, but find a web app, find a, a computer app, find a game, something simple. Start with Pac Man. See if you can create it just for fun. And that way, if you can create that, that means you're thinking. And that means you're learning techniques that you may not have already known. You're, you're, you're putting stuff together from school. You're putting some, something together from real life. You're putting something together you had to research on. And so that's what I encourage people to do is go out and just find something. It doesn't matter if it's useful. It doesn't matter if you throw it away when you're done. It has, it has no regard to what, you know, if you're going to sell it for a million dollars or not. But do something that you're going to enjoy, but see if you can create it. I joke, uh, when I would teach the database class, I would joke with my students that I always remembered my mom, much like your dad, would bring home the computer during the summer. Oh, yes. Because they would not want those to stay in the classroom at school. And so um, it was an old, I think it was an IBM uh, XTAT maybe. It was very, very small, had the two three and a half. There was no hard drive internally. And uh, she had a program called First Choice. And the very first database I ever created and worked on was cataloging all of my VHS tapes. Oh my goodness. So I could go ahead and make my stickers. It said, this is tape number one, and it has this show, this show, this show. And then later on, I actually bought a program that I think I still have the box for today, which was called Comic Collector. I used that to go in and put in the name of the comic, mm-hmm. the, the writer, the publisher, you know, how much it was worth and all that. And then never thinking years later, I would be creating stuff like that from scratch. So... 
um, I can look back on that and like just laugh at, at what I already had back then. And that was that made so much sense to me then. I was the end user because yeah, I had comics. I wanted to keep track of the comics. And then later to try to explain a database, I'd already been doing one and didn't even know it at the time. So there's a, there's a lot of applications that you can have there. Yeah, it's a lot. There's so much out there today that there. It's it's hard to find something that does everything you want it to do, and that's why I tell students that's when you start. It's funny you you brought back memories of yeah the VHS list at our house was always a piece of paper written on scribbled out what's on this nope sure. now it's this no nope, now it's that and uh, but I remember putting that into a computer once to keep track of and I think it was Excel or or you know whatever spreadsheet we had at the time. To be able to keep track of, but yeah, even even little custom databases. I mean, anything that you can, you know, start to store and you, you talk about databases. If you you know just make lists and then hey, normalize this. Hey, try to create new tables. And so there's always a way to experiment on your own and get better at what you do. Do you have any advice for, let's say, there is a person who's done a lot of programs for friends for themselves. They've got a nice portfolio, but the question may be, okay. How do I get people that may potentially be interested in this portfolio to even see it? I mean, how, do, how, do you, how do you network? How do you spread your wings and, and allow people to know that you're known? Yep. One, talk. Talk to people. Reach out to people. It's amazing how many requests I get on LinkedIn. Uh, people I know, people I don't know. And you know, I don't ignore everyone I don't know, but there are people that go out and say, hey, he's in computing. Maybe, you know, maybe he can help me out. And that's exactly... You know, not just on computers, but it's what you should do in life. I mean, drop your resume off, uh, drop your you know, drop your portfolio off, get yourself on the web, put your website on a business card, and just drop it off anyway. Hey, if you ever need anything, you know, I'm looking for this, or I'm good at this, and if you, if you need a website done, if you need an application written, I like to do gaming. Just be sure to, to talk to people. Randomly email. Put a resume at, at any company that you think you might like to work for or might hire you. Um, what I tell students is, you can't just sit back and think an opportunity is going to drop in your lap. And not everybody's going to want to hire you if you just sit there. If you be the proactive person and you pursue them, then they may find a skill in you that they like, and that may convince them to hire you. But they're not going to know you. You know, a programming job at Marshall may get 40 applicants. If you just send in your resume and you don't talk to anybody else, you're ne they're not going to know you. A couple weeks ago, one of our grads applied for a job here, and he went to talk to him. And he talked to HR, talked to the computing services, and I was proud of him. I mean, the position had been filled, so I don't know who's going to get it, but I was very proud to hear that, that he's being very proactive and following up, as opposed to probably half the people that applied, nobody will know him. Right. I, I think a lot of times with that, if you show interest in that company, that company will show interest in you. And I, I think a lot of students need to understand that. And it's, it's you know, we, we tend to get a lot of students with, with social awkwardness at times because a lot of times they spend so much time behind a computer and and they can email like crazy and they can message like crazy and then but physically going somewhere and then just saying hey here's a face you can put with that name that you have on a sheet of paper can make the the biggest difference in the world oh, especially definitely. now definitely. um that that makes these a lot of these companies they want to see you even if you don't get hired there you they might know someone else that's looking for somebody like you yeah, especially in a global market today where so many jobs are advertised everywhere and people apply from everywhere else, is they want to make sure you can fit in the company, right. that you can be a good team player no matter what the position is. And, yeah, if you're going to be introverted and sit there and not talk, then a lot of companies are going to say, you know what, you know, that may not work out for us. Right, right. Well, I just did a, um, 
an internship class the other day where I had Rhonda Scragg come back and she talked to a lot of the students about great interview skills. And one of the very first things they said for the interview is do research on the company. Mm -hmm. Make them see that, oh, this person actually wants to be there. And I, I think it, it, it adds to what you were saying for the student. The student was putting in the effort to show them, hey, I actually want this job. I actually want to be here. I'm coming to meet you. I'm not just going to submit my resume and sit back and think, well, if they want me, they'll come and call me. They were actually showing that on their side they wanted to be here. They wanted the job. They had the drive. And then hopefully people can view that and go, wow, this person really is putting a lot of effort into this. They'll put a lot of effort into the job as well. I've interviewed people for positions at the university before that didn't even know where we were. That literally, and a lot of people hear the joke, oh, West, oh you're near Richmond, West Virginia, you, you're near this. And, it's, and it's happened to me. Right. But interviewing someone, I actually had the guy ask one time, well, how close are we to the border of, of Virginia? We're not even close. <laughs> Ohio is out my window, yes. but we're not even close to Virginia. We do have a Roanoke close to us. <laughs> but it's not the same one you're thinking of. <laughs> right, but, exactly. it, but, yeah, a little bit of research and Google on them and see where you're on a map. But, yeah, about the company, I mean, you know, hey, what are your aspirations? Oh, I want to move up to be CIO. We don't have a CIO position. Well, that means you didn't do your research. So, yeah, right. a little right. bit of knowledge about the company really does go a long way. Well, Thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us about your trajectory uh, through through your classes and programming. On the next one, we're going to talk to you about uh, being a manager. So for now, this is uh, Patrick Smith signing off. And Josh Joseph. So have a great week. <laughs>